Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. The AASM recently released a new clinical practice guideline, which provides necessary recommendations for adults with REM sleep behavior disorder. Here to tell us more about this is Dr. Michael Howell. Dr. Howell is a professor and the vice chair for education in the Department of Neurology at the University of Minnesota, and is dedicated to developing novel strategies to improve brain function and sleep health. Dr. Howell's research interests include characterizing the relationship between sleep and neurological disorders and determining whether these processes are reversible with current or experimental therapies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So one of the things I love about our field is how smart people made observations and followed them to discover something new. So talk to me about the discovery of RBD. Oh, thanks, Seema. That is a that is a great place to start. Uh, it was uh, discovered uh, by my mentors, Carlos Schenk and Mark Mahaud, along with a, a wonderful sleep technologist named Andrea Patterson back in 1982. In fact, uh, as Carlos will love to tell you, it was the second patient he ever saw in his sleep clinic on his very first day. That's wild. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So that's cool that his second patient had RBD. Um, Can you remind me again about how this whole thing was uncovered with the cats? Oh, it's a great great story. Uh, So Jouvet had done uh, quite a bit of brainstem lesion work in the late 1950s uh, and in the 1960s in France. Uh, demonstrating that a lesion to the pontine tegmentum in cats um, was not fatal. Uh, Cats were otherwise fine, uh, but at night uh, during sleep, they would be um, uh, stalking, they would be apparently stalking prey, swatting, um, swatting at some imaginary uh, figures uh, that they were clearly dreaming about. Um, And it was, uh, there was a thought at the time, is it possible that there could be a human version of Juve's cats? And so when uh, Carlos and Mark and Andrea discovered REM sleep behavior disorder in humans, uh, they, uh, it, was, it was very quickly uh, understood uh, that uh, they had found the human manifestation of, of uh, Juve's cats. Um, worthwhile to point out that um, James Parkinson uh, himself, in, a, in the original monograph that described Parkinson's disease in 1817, described one patient, in particular patient six, uh, who almost certainly had REM sleep behavior disorder. And then uh, in the 1970s, there were several cases of really vigorous uh, sleep-related behavior that was also REM sleep behavior disorder in the setting of, um, of uh, narcolepsy. So, um, There had been, dream enactment itself had been described, but it hadn't been all put together. It hadn't been recognized that it was coming out of REM sleep. Um, And then, of course, the relationship between REM sleep behavior disorder uh, and later neurodegeneration uh, was not discovered uh, until uh, Mark and Carlos came along. So the new RBD guidelines were published in JCSM this past December. So what are the main takeaways from this? Well, so REM sleep behavior disorder uh, can result in dangerous dream enactment, as the AS, ASM members obviously know. Uh, they, very important to start with uh, bedroom safety, as ASM members know. 
uh, but think about um, ask about ask about weapons. Ask about weapons in the bedroom. A lot of people have uh, firearms, including loaded firearms, in the bedroom. It's good to ask about that. Uh, but also just uh, explore the overall safety of the bedroom. Uh, do you have a bed partner right next to you? Are either of you frail? Or are either of you on um, anticoagulation? Uh, something that would make a somewhat minor uh, event of dream enactment far more serious. Um, and then in terms of management, not everyone needs uh, pharmacotherapy for REM sleep behavior disorder. Our, our goals, number one, two, and three, are to prevent injury, prevent injury, and prevent injury. And so if you have an individual who is um, only, only with modest uh, dream enactment, they sleep alone, they haven't left the bed, they haven't fallen out of bed, um, you could explore the possibility of just watchful waiting on that individual. On the other hand, if there is, if a person has injured themselves, if they've injured a bed partner, uh, or if they've had high-risk behaviors such as getting out of bed, waking up on the ground, standing up in bed, uh, it's a very good idea to pursue treatment. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about pharmacotherapy and the new recommendations and how these are different. So for example, I see that pramipexol is no longer a recommendation. So was there just not enough data to support it or what happened? Well, just a clarification, we are doing a conditional recommendation for pramipexol for isolated RBD. Now, mm. I um, I have some opinions about that, um, but of course, this uh, document is not just my own opinions. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, 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 an amalgamation of the wisdom of the task force that we collected over four years. Uh, the highlights are, uh, as before, clonazepam and melatonin, with a, with a focus on immediate release melatonin, are conditional recommendations for both isolated RBD and secondary RBD. And secondary mm -hmm. RBD is just the category of RBD in the setting of um, other neurological disorders, in particular Parkinson's disease, dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, narcolepsy can fall into that category. But I think for those of us who think about this, narcolepsy is a very different condition than Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies. So a little bit of clinical judgment is very appropriate there. Um, and we can talk about uh, the evidence that led us to those conclusions. Um, obviously, this is the same as was in the um, recommendation back in 2009, uh, but we have had more uh, clinical trials, in particular placebo-controlled trials um, for these agents, in particular for immediate-release melatonin. Mm. In addition to that, we are re recommending, uh, pro I'm sorry, we are providing a conditional recommendation uh, for rivastigmine. Uh, rivastigmine is acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. It was, uh, it is commonly employed uh, to uh, provide a little bit of a cognitive boost for those who are suffering from um, dementia, uh, Alzheimer's disease, as well as in particular dementia with Lewy bodies. And since uh, many of our patients have a Lewy body type underlying pathology, this is really um, a direction that I think um, many providers will take from this guideline is just recognizing the opportunity to use rivastigmine uh, in this population to assist with dream enactment. We did have a placebo-controlled trial to uh, helping to establish rivastigmine, um, but also these individuals often benefit from a um, from the cognitive benefits from those medications as well. And in terms of pramipexol, 
Um, because of a trial, uh, we did uh, agree for a conditional recommendation for Pramipexol in isolated RBD. Speaking personally as how I practice, uh, I very rarely ever use Pramipexol. I will use it in situations where I'm fairly certain uh, that the individual's also struggling with uh, periodic limb movement disorder. And mm. uh, for the, all of the polysomnographers out there, uh, we're very familiar with seeing many cases of um, very severe PLMD that just seems to persist deep into REM sleep. And I suspect that's what we're really seeing um, as the individuals who did the best in those trials, in that trial in particular, uh, were also those who had very high um, elevated uh, PLMs. Which makes sense, right? So let's talk about these new medications. Is this something that every sleep clinician should be comfortable with? And I, and I come from this being a pulmonologist. So mm -hmm. I personally has, have never prescribed rivastigmine or denepazil. Mm -hmm. Well, I, this is what is great about our field, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, we, uh, that we have such incredible diversity um, that uh, I can bring uh, expertise in neurology, uh, you bring in pulmonary critical care. Uh, Dr. Shank brings in from psychiatry. It's it's what most of us love about about sleep medicine. So I that being said, I wouldn't tell anyone what to do. Seema, <laughs> uh, I'll do I'll do my best with managing hypoventilation, but I also uh, I also know that I have uh, colleagues that I can reach out to. But what I what I would say is that if if you are comfortable. Um, uh, this would be a very reasonable approach uh, if you have a lot of patients or even a few patients with REM sleep behavior disorder um, and you've had a conversation with them about the relationship between REM sleep behavior disorder and uh, neurodegeneration. Oftentimes this will come up. They will describe issues in regards to, you know, as you see them over the years, they'll describe issues in terms of um, memory challenges, um, uh, possibly Sometimes it manifests it as uh, frustration and personality changes. Uh, that it it may certainly be reasonable uh, to consider uh, rivastigmine, and you also mentioned denepazil, which is an older, less expensive uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Now, just to clarify, this is a guideline for the dream enactment of REM sleep behavior disorder. For so, for the treatment of REM sleep behavior disorder alone, you could use this therapy. Um, uh, you could ask. You, you may ask the question of how does it work. Uh, good, good question. Not exactly sure. These uh, these promote acetylcholine. Obviously, uh, REM sleep is a intensely cholinergic state. So that would be my guess in terms of the mechanism. Uh, but it is what is. But it is quite clear that these individuals also appear to have a fairly clear daytime benefit from taking these agents as well. Okay. So help me. Help me. You know teach this to me like I am a medical student. <laughs> so how do you dose it? What side effects do we look for? You know, and, and I'm thinking of it from the lens of I practice in a rural environment mm -hmm. and it's not always feasible for patients to see a neurologist. So how can I help my patients at least get them started on something? Yeah. So I would, st I would start with melatonin. Um, uh, I'd start, I personally start with three milligrams of melatonin uh, and then usually increase to six milligrams by the, uh, by within a month. And then if necessary, get it up to 15 or 18 milligrams of melatonin. And then I add in clonazepam. I would point out that there, because I, I survey 
uh, fellow attendees at the sleep meeting as well as the American Academy of Neurology meeting every year. And there are still a very sizable number of sleep neurologists who really prefer prescribing clonazepam based upon their experience mm -hmm. as a first-line therapy. And I think that is entirely justifiable. Um, that, is, that is a very reasonable approach. Um, and personally, I have uh, usually started with, uh, I still usually start with melatonin. Uh, and then after melatonin, uh, I will consider, I, um, you know, nine times out of 10, I will add on uh, clonazepam next if we do decide to do uh, a second agent. Usually it is the addition of a second agent as opposed to replacing melatonin. Um, and then usually um, rivastigmine or denepazil uh, would be added as a third line uh, medications. And so added, not you wouldn't stop the clonazepam or is it if you have a contraindication Exactly. to clonazepam or something like that, that you would substitute rivastigmine. Exactly. And there's a lot of contraindications to clonazepam, right? These are, a lot of our patients are elderly or are becoming elderly. If they have uh, Parkinsonism, often they have balance or gait if difficulties, they have cognitive concerns. So there's a lot of reasons why individuals will be contraindicated to going on uh, clonazepam. Well, rivastigmine is available orally, but it's also uh, uh, typically administered by a transdermal patch. Uh, dosing typically starts with 4.6 milligrams applied every 24 hours uh, and can be increased up to 13.3 milligrams uh, daily. Um, it uh, reduces, it can reduce RBD symptoms um, and it's the strongest uh, efficacy was really in those individuals who had REM sleep behavior disorder along with some degree of cognitive impairment, um, usually still very functioning. Um, and, and, um, side effects to be aware of, you know, you're using a patch. So skin irritation is, a, is a, is a concern. Um, but nausea, vomiting, headache, bradycardia. So classic cholinergic type, uh, side effects. Hmm. So how do you figure out who is at higher risk of developing neurodegenerative disease? Um, great question. And this, we did tackle this in the um, clinical practice guideline uh, because we realize that a lot of individuals, a lot of, a lot of sleep providers are not, uh, don't have a lot of experience of helping uh, patients deal with uh, uh, either a neurodegenerative disorder diagnosis or just being at high risk for developing one. Uh, most, probably the best study, it would indicate that uh, 74% of individuals with REM sleep behavior disorder uh, uh, with isolated, correction, isolated REM sleep behavior disorder uh, will develop a neurodegenerative disorder within 12 years. Uh, that was based upon a greater than 1,000 uh, individual multicenter tri clinical trial. So we are, we're talking about a very large mm -hmm. uh, percentage of individuals who are going to have um, uh, some degree of neurodegeneration. Um, and I, I don't, I usually uh, initiate the conversation fairly early, um, understanding that very likely when they walk out of my door, out of the office, they're going to Google REM sleep behavior disorder and the relationship between RBD and Parkinson's or dementia with Lewy bodies is going to pop up anyway. So I, um, and oftentimes that's a, that's not a bad way to start the conversation is just say, oh, by the way, if you do. Um, Google this, you may very well uh, find this uh, relationship. 
Now, uh, I'm very comfortable. I've, I take care of a lot of people with Parkinson's disease, so I know what Parkinson's disease looks like. Um, and I will be the first to tell them, look, you, you, you do not have Parkinson's disease, assuming they don't. Um, and uh, I describe what that means, what Parkinson's disease is, which is a neuro neurodegenerative disorder, um, which um, presents with motor features um, of the resting tremor, cogwheel rigidity, bradykinesia. Uh, but in addition to that, it is, it is diffusely affecting neurons uh, throughout the central and peripheral nervous system. So these are people who have Parkinson's disease, uh, I'm sorry, correction, people who are going to develop Parkinson's disease um, uh, not only have REM sleep behavior disorder of dream enactment, um, often years to decades before the development of motor features, they have other evidence of neurodegeneration. Um, they have constipation because there is neurodegeneration happening in the enteric plexus of the gut. They have difficulty with smell. They either have a very poor sense of smell or they cannot smell at all um, because of neurodegeneration that is occurring in the olfactory bulb. And so this is, um, these. I usually, I'm, I'm asked, when I'm talking to a patient with REM sleep behavior disorder, we are asking these questions. So, and I'll often phrase it, well, with, um, let me ask a question that is going to be seemingly very unrelated. Uh, do you have constipation? Or are you treated for constipation? And more often than not, Seema, they are uh, kind of surprised that I, I asked the question because they, they often give you a, how did you know? Or how right. did you know I had trouble smelling? Um, and that is that can be very useful to help uh, an individual understand that this is part of a larger process. Uh, but hopefully it is also... Um, hopefully frequently reassuring because many times they think about like, oh, geez, I've had constipation for two decades, three decades. Mm. I've never been able to smell particularly well, um, which hopefully should help them understand that this is a very slow uh, evolving process in the overwhelming major majority of cases. So that's two of them, right? You ask them about their sense of smell and you ask them about constipation. Um, what else do you ask them? Um, I ask them about um, orthostasis. Mm. So do they get, and usually I just phrase it as, do you get lightheaded when you stand up? Maybe I'll give an example of getting up in the morning. Um, and also we ask about um, whether or not they are on a antidepressant medication or a serotonergic, particularly the sure. serotonergic SSRI uh, medications. It's very interesting. It, uh, Serotonin is part of the REM control circuit inside the pons. We don't know exactly how this works, uh, but it is fairly clear uh, that um, the classic SSRIs, paroxetine, sertraline, those agents um, frequently uh, exacerbate uh, dream enactment. Now, the question is, is it, is it um, triggering dream enactment as a toxic effect or is it possibly... Uh, unmasking an individual who is at high risk of, who ultimately will develop REM sleep behavior disorder later. We do not know the answer to that question. Um, but as far as risk is concerned, if you have someone, uh, just for example, 45 years old, they, they've had dream enactment for a couple of years. It is fairly clear that dream enactment started after um, initiating a serotonergic antidepressant medication. Um, uh, they don't really have constipation. They can smell pretty well, at least as far as they can tell. 
um, that individual is at fairly low risk uh, of developing neurodegeneration, at least in the next uh, five to 10 years, which is what people, um, you know, that's, that's really what they are concerned about when they're in. Um, if, you, if you tell them, well, you know, several decades from now, um, you may, you know, develop a neurodegenerative disorder. You know, if you're talking to someone who's in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, that's not you typically met with too much mm. um, alarm. Um, oftentimes, most it's most of the people I talk to have some family history of either dementia or Parkinson's disease, uh, and so they kind of <clears throat> were already aware that they might be at higher risk of a neurological disorder. Um, and hopefully this helps provide some degree of insight in terms of um, helping them understand the, the, the nature of how these conditions progress. Uh, it gives them the opportunity to participate in clinical research if they're interested, um, but also just to develop a relationship with the provider over years so that they can help to understand uh, and watch for these um, clinical signs uh, it's also very important to note that Parkinson's disease is a treatable condition. Um, I can, I, when I think of Parkinson's disease, I think of a patient of mine who has had Parkinson's disease for 20 years. Uh, and if you saw him in the mall, um, you probably would be surprised to find out that he has a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Hmm. So there's, there's many people who actually do very, very well with the disorder and the diagnosis. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the new RBD guidelines. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Sleep Medicine Trends is back. Join us for the premier educational event on February 17th through the 19th in Austin, Texas. For more information on how to register, visit aasm.org trends. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Howell about the AASM's recently released clinical practice guidelines around RBD. What do we do with a patient who is noted to have isolated REM sleep without atonia on a PSG, but they've never had dream enactment behaviors? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I've seen a lot of these. Have you seen a lot of these, Seema? I have, and I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> Um, I often see that. I think I saw one yesterday. Uh, usually, it's a it's a patient who's being evaluated for sleep disorder breathing, right? And uh, whoops, there is a whole bunch of motor activity. Um, I'll I'll go I'll go back and ask uh, um, an individual if they uh, if they've had REMS, if they have any dream enactment again. I'll give some examples of what that means. And they're like, oh, so a good number of them, Seema, will say, oh, yeah, you know, my spouse or my partner really says I talk a lot. And because of that, we stopped sleeping in the same room several years ago. Um, just as often, though, is an individual who is uh, completely unaware of any significant dream enactment. Mm -hmm. I'll go look through, usually while I'm reading the study, I'll have their chart open and I'll take a look. And it seems like more often than not, they have an antidepressant on board. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, there we go. That might be it. Um, that's just, you know, causing a little bit of increased um, motor activity during REM sleep. Um, and I'll, I, what I usually will, I will not give them a diagnosis of REM sleep behavior disorder. I'll just give them, um, I will make a, a chart note that they have um, REM sleep, uh, they have some degree of excessive motor activity during REM sleep. And it's just a good idea to keep an eye on them. So just to, just to continue to ask about dream enactment, I'll certainly ask about it in follow-up. 
But then I'll usually um, just ask at annual follow-ups for management of their sleep disorder breathing, or if they are um, if they are not going to be in my clinic anymore because, say, they didn't have sleep disorder breathing mm. and they're, you're, they're being discharged from your clinic, I'll just let them know. I'm like, look, it's possible that you may um, uh, start acting out your dreams. We saw a lot of motor activity during REM sleep. Uh, would you just do me a favor? Would you just send me a note if the day ever happens where um, you, you start acting out your dreams or you have an event? Uh, and then I'll give usually a couple examples of what that means. Mm-hmm. No, I think, it, and I think it's important conversation. You know, usually the conversation is, hey, we've noticed this and, you know, and, and I'll ask about, you know, dream enactment and sort of plant the seed almost of just making them aware of, um, and then they'll query the bed partner or what have you. But it's, um, it's something I, I, I kind of do feel compelled to discuss though. Well, and just REM sleep behavior disorder is just crazy common. It is, um, it's at least 1% of the population. So mm-hmm. that's 80 million people worldwide. If you look at a population older than 60, um, it's one out of 20 at least. This is just a lot. There's a lot of people who deal with this. I, I have never given a talk to a group of, you know, whether or not it's the general public or a group of retired physicians where uh, of a sizable number where someone hasn't come up to me afterwards says, oh, yeah, I do this. My <laughs> right. wife does this. Right. Um, you know, this is not uh, you don't <laughs> you don't need to go to the Azores uh, <laughs> to find somebody with this condition. Well, and so that's that's just it. You know, I always I, I feel like we miss a lot of it. And I often wonder if this is something that AI scoring could help us with or or is this something that you think is only important if there are clinical symptoms? Well, I I would love to have a good idea of what uh, an individual's REM motor tone score is, just kind of mm-hmm. as a baseline, like like we get blood pressure and heart rate. But I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, in in terms of um, in terms of just monitoring. For REM motor tone, you know, the number of uh, people who are getting in laboratory studies that even measure REM sleep is is going down at least as a percentage of uh, sleep studies because of the growth of home sleep apnea testing, which is of course um, right, which is course which is of course understandable. I've had discussion with AI people, you oh. know, and I've brought it up of just because sometimes I think it's hard to identify. You know, when I pull up, when I'm looking at the raw mm-hmm. data, and I'll often pull in all three chin leads. And sometimes, like the other day, I was reading a study, and two seem like they're kind of elevated, and one seems like it's not. I'm like, well, and is it around arousal? And is it around sleep state mm-hmm. transition? And that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do kind of feel like it could be algorithmic, you know, that you look in terms of amplitude of chin tone and does it pass a certain criteria for mm-hmm. more than 15 seconds of that epoch and so on and so forth, yes. right? Um, so I guess my question to you is, do you think that AI scoring is something that would he- help us to better identify those that have increased motor tone during REM? And oh, then 
will this give us this heightened awareness of and and have that conversation with patients? Yeah, I, I, I think AI scoring could be very useful. We need to recognize that it's going to cause a lot of alarm. That'll be right. we'll certainly pick up probably a lot more false positives or get people you know worried, and we need to be aware of that and be prepared for those conversations. Here's what I do when I look at a study. So not all motor, as you know, not all motor activity in REM sleep is the same. Um, look closely to see if this is an association with a respiratory event related arousal or whether or not a hypopnea or an apnea of some sort. Um, also take a look at, does this seem to coincide with the phasic REM? So with the rapid eye movements, that's very consistent with um, REM sleep behavior disorder. And then, then pop open the video and mm -hmm. hopefully, hopefully you can see their hands. Hopefully their hands are not hidden. Um, because that is where we call it hand babbling. Uh, it just looks like an individual's kind of doing sign language. It looks like they're talking with their hands. They may look like they're texting with their mm. hands, pointing, typing, uh, very consistent with subtle dream enactment behavior. Um, and I, if, if you were to read my reports, there's, um, my reports vary from, um, increased transient sustained motor activity along with visualized behavior suggestive of dream enactment, cons mm. consistent with the patient's history, the patient has RBD, right? right. Um, to uh, the patient did have elevated uh, REM motor activity, but often in association with um, sleep disorder breathing. And then mm -hmm. in my recommendation will be something like, uh, why don't you screen the patient for dream enactment behavior? Uh, and if that dream enactment behavior persists after sleep disorder sort of breathing is addressed, consider a diagnosis of REM sleep behavior disorder or something like that. So what about trauma-related RBD like we see in our military veterans? Is this a different animal? That's a good question. We, th we definitely need to study this more. Um, there is um, a growing recognition of the of the of the phenomena that there is a whole bunch of individuals um, with post-traumatic stress disorder who also have a vigorous dream enactment behavior conversely a whole bunch of people with PTSD their REM sleep is fine they have they they deal with their very traumatic nightmares um, and the hyperadrenergic response from them uh, but if you look at their REM motor tone they're fine um, so one large question that has not been answered yet is of the individuals who have post-traumatic stress disorder and RBD combined, um, are they, do they have that because they are also on antidepressant medication? Right. Because right. they almost are all uh, either on or have been exposed in the past to a serotonergic agent. And we just, we just don't know the answer to that right now. Well, and I think that's such an important thing, you know, especially if they are reaping a tremendous benefit from their antidepressant. And then you have this conversation about, well, I think this is what it's causing. Um, and that can be a tough conversation sometimes. Oh, that's absolutely right. And just to be just to be clear, and this is this is in the guideline is that we recommend just discussing in terms of drug induced or exacerbated REM sleep behavior disorder, just helping an individual understand that these medications may be exacerbating uh, dream enactment and RBD, but removing or titrating down this medication needs to be taken with great care uh, because oftentimes the benefits uh, from helping control mood and anxiety vastly overwhelm uh, what in, for many people is, is relatively minor uh, right. dream enactment behavior. Right. 
So then other than medications, what other advice should be, we be giving our patients to help preserve their brain function? So this is the goal of many researchers, particularly those of us affiliated with the NAP study, the North American Prodromal Synucleinopathy Study, which is a uh, $30 million uh, plus award from the National Institutes of Health, um, uh, as well as uh, the Canadian government. Um, you can uh, see the sites throughout uh, North America where you uh, could either send patients to or patients couldn't uh, reach out to themselves directly. Um, uh, what do we know about potential disease-modifying uh, treatments or treatments that could be neuroprotective? At this point, unfortunately, not much. Um, what appears to be the strongest evidence for neuroprotection uh, is exercise. And in particular, um, the kind of exercise where you sweat. Right. Um, the, the Ideally, getting that heart rate up to uh, 80% of maximum uh, for uh, 20 to 30 minutes, three times a week. That would be ideal. And that's just so that you know, that's the kind where you are sweating and you are out of breath. Of course, many of our patients may also have heart disease, so this needs to be taken with care in some circumstances. Um, but of course, that level of exercise is also great for mood, immune health, um, joint health, weight, metabolism, um, cardiovascular health, all of those sorts of things. Oh, so that's interesting. Tell me more about this study. So the North American Prodromal Synucleinopathy Study um, is uh, currently enrolling. For anyone who is interested, please go to the NAPS website. You can find it very easily by just doing an internet search for NAPS, uh, N-A-P-S, R-B-D. Um, and we are uh, doing very careful motor testing, cognitive testing. We're doing MRI scans, um, DAT scan studies, uh, and other investigations to very closely uh, help understand what is going on in individuals' brains um, as they have REM sleep behavior disorder and ultimately to help develop uh, cures and treatments uh, to prevent Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies. Oh, what a good cause. What a good study. So what do you think of the posy pad? The posy pad as a, as a strategy to help individuals from jumping out of bed? Mm -hmm. Or even just to sort of recalibrate, right? Oh, honey, it's okay. Go back to bed. So maybe tell us a little bit about the posy pad and how you've used it. Sure. Well, this is, it's a great story. Um, the, the credit for this needs to go to Pat Arneson, who was my, a nurse about a decade ago who noticed in a family member of hers uh, who had bad uh, RBD that the only thing that would work uh, was to use a voice-activated uh, bed alarm. So not a bed alarm that would go beep, 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 and scare somebody half to death, but instead a bed alarm where you could record a message, where you could record a message that would say something like, Seema, you're having a dream, lay back down. And so anytime an individual would arise from this pressure pad that would just be placed underneath the sheets, all of a sudden you'd have that, um, uh, have that voice, um, which would just say, Seema, you're having a dream, lay back down. Usually it's, usually it would be recorded from a family member. Um, uh, we've had a good number of individuals who've had a very successful response to that. We don't, we only use it in people who have very severe, potentially injurious behavior, particularly leaving the bed that is just not responding, responding to melatonin, clonazepam, 
um, and uh, denepazil or rivastigmine. Yeah, I like it. I, I like that it's sort of a non-pharmacological intervention. We've had patients will say, we've had a couple examples. It's small. Uh, we published this in JCSM, oh, probably about a decade ago now. Um, what patients will say is it just feels like a, a loving family member is just watching over their sleep. Oh, uh, and just they're just keeping an eye on because, you know, we as you know, I mean, many of our what do the bed partners say? Why, one of the reasons why the bed partners don't leave the bedroom, even though they're being kicked and hit, is that they know that just a little a little hand on their shoulder or something that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes right. just a little bob, you're having a dream. It's OK. It's it'll that will calm them down very commonly. REM sleep is a very has a very low threshold for an arousal. You can, you can talk to somebody in REM sleep. Um, I don't think the conversation is going to be that profound, but you can, <laughs> you can say, you can say something to them. It will, it will go through their brain stem, stem, it'll go up into their auditory cortex and they will process that information. As long as it's a relatively straightforward command, like settle down, calm down, lay back down. Those sorts of things often work, which is completely the opposite with sleepwalking, right? right? With sleepwalking, you might as well be you might as well be talking to the radio. There's they're not picking up anything that you're telling them. So, any final thoughts? Um, well, I just want to I really want to thank the uh, task force. It's when when these guidelines come out, it's hard to overstate how much work went into them. Um, it's been more than four years. Uh, the task force, we were meeting at least monthly for a while there. We were meeting every single week. We went over thousands of studies um, and uh, just a tr tremendous all-in effort uh, to make this happen. And to uh, thank the American Academy, American Academy of Sleep Medicine um, for uh, putting the expertise together to make it happen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and providing helpful insights into RBD and the new clinical practice guideline. Uh, thank you, Seema. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>